This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. There are new episodes every Thursday, so subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. And if you'd like to, you can also rate and review what you hear. Now this year, English Heritage are celebrating the many ways the past has shaped our nation. And this week, we're uncovering the history hidden in plain sight in the English landscape. These features include burial mounds, stone circles, figures carved into chalk hills, and the network of ancient paths that crisscross the country. If you've ever come across one of these, or if you've deliberately travelled to explore one, you're likely to have had many questions about how they fit into England's story. Well, joining me to answer some of those questions is anthropologist, broadcaster and author Marianne Ohota. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. No problem. Thank you for coming on. So you're the author of a book called Hidden Histories, A Spotter's Guide to the British Landscape, and it looks at how features in the landscape hint at the past. What inspired you to write it and what first interested you in the subject? So I was fortunate enough to study archaeology and anthropology at Cambridge University and I went to uni to study social anthropology, but in the first year you have to study archaeology as well. And so our first field trip on a particularly kind of grisly autumn day, we went down to Wiltshire and we explored Avebury Stone Circle and then went up to West Ken at Longbarrow, which is a Neolithic chambered tomb, so the late Stone Age. It was constructed about 3,600-ish BC and you can actually go inside it. And my supervisor, who is a fantastic prehistorian who's based at Durham now, Professor Chris Scar, said, you know, just explore it, see what you see, see what you think, see what features kind of pop out for you. And it was just this extraordinary experience of starting to look with fresh eyes because I was trying to work out the puzzle of what this place represented and what these different elements of the structure meant and how it then fitted into the landscape around us and how it was associated with both natural features and other prehistoric features. So from the mouth of West Kennet Longbarrow, from this huge forecourt of massive stones, sarsen stones that have been stood upright, you can see Silbury Hill. You can look across the downs to the next high ground, which is Overton Hill, and I knew that on Overton Hill, there are round barrows, which are later burial mounds from the Bronze Age. There are also actually Saxon and Roman burials there too. And you've got an ancient trackway that runs over the high ground there. Below you, you've got Swallowhead Springs, which are a natural water source, and then the start of the river valley. And as he was explaining to us this landscape and the layers upon layers that people had constructed and then the next set of people come and some of those features are worn away, eroded, written over, destroyed, but then other parts are incorporated. It was just this sense of this kind of rich tapestry of human life all around me that represented five and a half thousand years of human endeavour in this one little patch of countryside. Mm. And the key was... You just need to start to know what features to look for and then ask questions about, well, what does that mean? What does that tell me about what has happened here? 
And I think that probably was the start of my passion for landscape spotting, as I call it. Yeah. It's a detective journey. And it sounds as though you were sort of going on this join the dots exercise, really, with your eyes. Yeah, exactly. And trying to work out how the different elements might have influenced each other, how people have responded to features in the landscape that for them were ancient. So the people building Bronze Age burial mounds in 1500 BC on the top of Overton Hill were doing it with reference to the prehistoric mound of Silbury Hill, which was built in 2400 BC. And they were doing it with reference to West Kennet Longbarrow, which was constructed in 3600 BC. And that's kind of where visible monuments in the British landscape sort of start, because we don't see very much from before then. But... In honesty, the people who were probably standing just on the shoulder of the hill by West Kennet were looking at a landscape that had already been transformed by some generations of farming and that whole package of change the Neolithic brings. So new types of animals, new types of crops, new types of ways of living, a more settled permanent farming lifestyle compared to the hunter-gatherers who were there before. But I think we have to remember that there were already people in this landscape. There were already ways that it had been changed. And the way they would have read that landscape is quite different to what we see now. Of course. And it sounds as though each generation is leaving its mark as it sort of comes and goes. So that got you interested in the subject, obviously. And I suppose at that point, little did you know that you'd be writing books about it <laughs> 10, 20 years later, whatever. Yeah. Working in um, TV archaeology, I've just from that first moment where your your kind of eyes are opened, I've had so many amazing experiences standing in literally a field with some preeminent expert or a specialist or someone who spent years and years researching a site going, oh, well, can you see the shape of that hedge over there? Well, that possibly suggests that that's the extent of the Norman Bailey around this mott mound that we're standing on. And I'm like, oh, does it? Oh, can you see that? Well, the, the way that that path has been hollowed out suggests that this village has origins that are prehistoric rather than what we can see now, which are a bunch of 17th century cottages. And it's just the more you see, the more you want to see. And the more you see, the more you kind of get your eye in. It's, mm. it's, it's, um, it's addictive. And as we sort of move forward through time and as you've written your book, did you have to do a lot of travelling and walking across the landscape for your research? It did involve quite a lot of walking, very enjoyably. Quite a lot of time of sort of staring at blades of grass because what's under your feet, the very small details, sometimes actually give you a lot of information. So it might be something as simple as the, the colour of the grass has changed and so that might suggest that you're standing on where an infilled ditch might have been because the vegetation is getting a tiny bit more moisture and so it can grow a little bit more green. Or you're walking through a field of crops, you know, at this time of year, swaying fields of wheat and oats and whatnot. And if you see those little changes in colour, it suggests that there's some kind of earthwork underneath. Aerial photography is fantastic, which is so readily accessible online now. You can see those crop marks particularly if we end up having a very, very dry summer, you get an extraordinary sort of exposition of the past. Yes, that's written, true. inscribed into the land. I believe last year that featured quite a lot, or it might have yeah. been the year before. Um, they found loads of stuff. Yeah. yeah. So it's actually, from what you've been describing, quite easy to read the landscape, at least for you. But how easy is it for an amateur who's just out for a walk with the dog? I think to get started, it's easy. The first step is to be 
interested and to kind of go, well, I wonder what that is and I wonder why. Those are your two key questions as a a landscape detective. And then you start doing your detective work. You look for the clues. Is it a pattern? Are there other things like this that you've seen before? Are there features around you that might give this thing meaning? Now, something as obvious as Stonehenge or West Kennet Longbarrow or a big old medieval castle from the 13th century at first look is is kind of more obvious. You go, okay, I know what that is. But if you're looking at a a roundish mound in a field, now that mound might be visible because it's just literally an anomaly from the natural land surface, or it might have a big stand of trees planted on top of it, so it sort of stands out in the landscape. Or it might be an area in what is otherwise a cultivated field, but that bit hasn't been ploughed. It's been left as grassland. And that's because that area is probably a scheduled monument and so it can't be disturbed by agricultural work. It can't be ploughed out. And so it's kind of noticing those things. Or if you're looking out across um, a landscape, you see those shapes or you look at, at the side of a building, of an old building, a church or what have you. Like notice where things change. Notice if the windows are a bit different, if the bricks don't line up, if the chimney seems a bit tall, then maybe it used to be thatched, maybe it had a different roof line. Maybe those blackened timbers suggest that it was once alight and, and burned and then parts of it were rebuilt. So I think it's easy to get started I think it's not always easy for amateur or professional to have an absolutely definitive answer because it sometimes requires an awful lot of research and and sometimes you need to take dating samples, you need to excavate, you need to commission a LIDAR or magnetometry survey or something like that, which obviously you can't do when you're just walking around or or staying Mm. on a footpath staring at something. Um, But I I think the wandering and the wondering is as important and as enjoyable as a definitive conclusion. I agree. I like a bit of mystery. And I think uh, it's always good to sort of just, as you say, throw around ideas between you and your walking partner or whatever, then move on to the next feature sort of thing. And, And that's all part of the journey, really. Well, let's imagine we're going on a series of country walks across England then. What are the, some of the key historical features that we might encounter? The earliest monuments that we see in the landscape are from the Neolithic, the Late Stone Age. Now, this typically starts around 4,500 BC and lasts up until about 2,400 BC, which is when metalworking, bronze metalworking, is introduced to Britain. And so then we call it the Bronze Age. The thing that really is most obvious in the English landscape from the Stone Age are enormous stone monuments. So things like dolmens or quoits, they're sometimes called in Cornwall, where you've got standing stones with a a kind of a capstone balanced, sometimes rather precariously on top, which are also a form of burial monument, we think, or they involved funerary practices, as the archaeologists would call them. Mm -hmm. Long barrows, chambered tombs like West Kennet that you can actually go into rather than a long barrow which is often quite a sealed a mound that is more long than it is round which there might not be internal chambers it might have been a mound constructed over the top of some kind of internal thing that you can't get into anymore Mm. I think the thing with these burial monuments is that we need to remember that they're not just burial monuments in the way that a modern parish church is involved with burial practices and funerals 
but it's not all it does. So I think when we explore them, we should also be thinking about a living community, interacting not just with the dead or the ancestors or human remains, but also interacting with the land and interacting with the sense of place. And what other features of the landscape might we see if we're on our walk as well, apart from stone okay. circles and, and burial and, and funerary items? From the Bronze Age, the most common, it's, this is actually the most common prehistoric feature in the English landscape, is the round barrow or a round cairn in upland areas. But the principle is the same, that there's a kind of burial or a cremation burial in the heart of the mound and then a mound of earth or stones is erected above it. Some people call them a tumulus or plural tumuli and you'll sometimes see that on Ordnance Survey maps as well, marked in sort of a Gothic script. So mm. they date from the Bronze Age. And then in the Iron Age, I think probably the most iconic, the most distinctive features in the landscape are things like the hill forts, where you basically have a whole hill that's transformed into a series of ramparts and ditches. The most famous example being Maiden Castle, but there are quite a lot, particularly in south and central England. And where's Maiden the, Castle? It's in Dorset. Right. And they're, they're really interesting too. People had long thought, well, these are defensive settlements because people were fighting. There was all lots of intertribal conflict. And so everyone built a big earthen castle and put their cows and their women folk and their grain, precious grain inside and then fought with the people from the other side of the hill. But again, I think people are quite complex. And so it seems more clear to us now that Iron Age hill forts were partly defensive, but they were also partly about status. They were also partly about showing off. And they were probably also about having a really good place for a party because fighting and drinking go together often. <laughs> mm. These uh, hill forts, long barrows and stone circles, they sound to me like they are the most obvious features in the landscape if we're doing a bit of landscape spotting. Is there anything yeah. else that's sort of a bit more subtle that you need a, a sharper eye to detect? Well, I think... The closer to the present day you come in time, the more you might be looking at details that are written into, say, the fabric of a standing building or written into the shape of a modern village or town. So you might be looking at the depth of a, a hollowway. So it might be a, a footpath or a bridleway, but it might also be a road you're driving along mm. where you end up on one of those sunken lanes, you know, where the, it's almost like you're in a tunnel of earth and, and green as, as the boughs of the trees meet over your head and that the sides of the earth rise up either side of you. Now, that's not because someone dug a shaft to put a road in. It's because literally the passage of hooves and feet and cartwheels over the centuries has eroded away the level. And so if you're coming into a village or along a, a stretch of a country lane where you're in a sunken lane, a hollow way, hollowed way, you need to start thinking, well, a road is a feature that links two places. And if I'm in this kind of hollow way, how many centuries must it have required to get as deep as I am now before the service was tarmacked or, or metal. And so things like that, you won't get a date in the calendar, but what you will get is a sense of the depth of history of the place that you're travelling through. Mm. And then you may well end up in this village and you see sort of picturesque country cottages. They might not be that old, but they may have 
elements that really are old. There may be the shape of the village green that's very old. There may be a pond for stock. There may be a pub with a very ancient name, which might suggest that this was a spot where people were driving cattle or livestock to a market town nearby. So you're kind of teasing out little threads of clues that might help you build a picture of the history of a place. Okay, so I've got a sense then of the various things that we can see on our sort of imaginary walk. If we sort of wind back the clock a bit and go into the Stone Age again, we've got Stonehenge, which English Heritage cares for, and that's perhaps the most famous example of a surviving stone circle. Where else can we find stone circles in England? And what do these represent? Stonehenge is fascinating for a number of reasons. It's not actually the best example in terms of understanding stone circles more generally because it's so complex and because it's so unique. Although that said, the blue stones, the ones that have famously been brought from southwest Wales, do have evidence in their shapes that suggest that they were some kind of monument elsewhere before they ever reached Stonehenge. So they've got mortise and tenon joints. So I think we have to remember that the stone circles that have survived are just a small representation of probably what was there before. And we know there were timber circles as well. Of the stone circles that are still standing, there's a really fantastic example that many people don't know about. It's called Stanton Drew and it's in Somerset. And it's actually the third largest complex of prehistoric stones in Britain. There are three really large circles and then a cove, which is three standing stones in an alignment by one of the circles that we don't really understand. And it's a fantastic place for landscape spotting because you can really get amongst the stones. You can try and work out what these circles represent. We don't know. So your guess is as good as any experts. There's also a trio of really fantastic stone circles in Cumbria. So there's Sunken Kirk, there is Castlerig Stone Circle and Long Meg and her daughters. And these are some of the earliest stone circles in Britain. And they are really remarkable, really interesting sites. Again, using different kinds of stone, different shapes. And there's a link, I think, to the landscape with the Cumbrian stone circles. Because, for example, one of the places that we know polished stone axes that were quarried from the Langdale Pikes, these precipitous mountains with huge scree slopes running down them, that is actually the remains of prehistoric quarrying, they were traded or perhaps used in ritual ways at these stone circles. So we don't know whether they were partly marketplace, partly meeting place, or whether they were purely ritual. Hmm. I think when we're thinking about people in the past, we try and separate ritual and secular activities. But actually in the past, those two things would come together and and go hand in hand. Are all these circular arrangements then? Stone circles, they are? Well, Long Meg, Long Meg and her daughters is interesting because Long Meg is actually a standing stone. She's very tall, hence Long Meg. And her daughters are these squat, fat little boulders. And it's interesting to kind of work out what they represent. And the romantic name of Long Meg and her daughters kind of throws up all manner of folkloric tales, which don't have any reference to prehistory. I mean, no one in the, the Bronze Age was calling it Long Meg and her daughters. But do they perhaps represent different elements of something? Is one the ancestors and one's a god or a goddess? Is it a male-female thing? Is it a earth-stone thing? Is it a sky thing and a, an underworld thing? We don't know. 
but it's really fun speculating. Yeah, I do love a mystery, as I said before. So uh, long barrows, let's move on to those. What are good examples of long barrows? Probably the most famous is West Kennet Long Barrow, but you've got loads of others to explore. There's Wayland Smithy, which is in Oxfordshire. Firstly, it's beautiful and, and rather magical in a kind of a stand of, of beautiful beech trees. But it's just off the Ridgeway, an ancient trackway that runs east-west from near Dorset right across to East Anglia. And about a mile up further along the Ridgeway, you reach Uffington Castle, which is an Iron Age hill fort, and then the Uffington White Horse, which is probably the oldest land art in the world. This extraordinary kind of elongated, very elegant figure of a horse kind of streaming across the hillside. It's actually incredibly difficult to read the shape of the horse from the ridgeway where you're kind of above it. But if you drop down into this natural landform called the manger and there's a kind of a hillock called Dragon Hill, you get a, a slightly better sense of the horse. And it's, it's a really interesting and complex site because you've got all these different elements that clearly interacted even though they're from different periods. And a little bit further down the hill, it's very easy to miss. It's just off the side of one of the footpaths. There's a sort of slight rise in a bit of a grassy mound. And that's actually a long barrow too that was reused in Roman times. So there's all manner of complexity. I didn't know about the long barrow until I looked online at the historic environment records and went, there's a long barrow, is there? And mm. went and tramped about until I could find the small rise in the grass and went, oh, there it is. That's cool. And then read the report that was online and um, learned about these secondary burials. So it was obviously apparent enough in Roman times that they decided that it was a kind of a cool place to put their dead as well. Yeah. Speaking of burials, we did in a previous episode about the summer solstice, we talked about burial chambers being designed around the movements of the sun. Can you tell us how else these chambers are oriented in the landscape? Were they perhaps on the top of a hill overlooking the land that the farmer would have tended? A lot of the time we'll find these burial monuments not on the highest point of the land, but perhaps halfway up a farmed valley. So it's almost like these long barrows were amongst the living landscape. So they're not entirely set apart, but they are overlooking the important areas where people would have had their livestock, they would have grown their crops. And so I think it, it helps us perhaps speculate on the role of these monuments and what role they played in terms of not just housing the dead but perhaps literally being a house for the ancestors and so there's that idea that the dead are helping you or perhaps acting as an intercessor between you and you the living community and whatever is beyond so that they can ensure that you do as well as you can, that you have good fortune, that you have good sunshine and good rain and that you have a good harvest and the animals don't get sick and that your children are healthy. And if you carry on doing the correct rituals and rites and making the correct offerings, then that cycle will continue. Mm. I think yeah. the other thing that we have to remember is that this is the Neolithic. People are settling. Farmers grow roots. They invest themselves in the land. And so building a monument that says we have been here forever these ancestors of ours are in the earth makes quite a claim to belonging and not a modern sense of ownership but that this is our place this is our territory this is where our people are from 
And so I think they're also statements of identity as much as places where you would put your dead. It sounds very logical. In some respects, quite comforting and um, sort of romantic in a way as well. As we sort of move forward through time and through our walk, we might encounter a hill fort that we've discussed already. But how often would we encounter a hill fort versus a stone circle, for example? I'm presuming that there are more hill forts than there are stone circles. Is that right? There are about 3,000 hill forts that we know about. Often they've survived better because A, they're on a hill and B, they're kind of earthworks. So they'll have softened, the banks will have got lower and the ditches will have got less deep. But they'll still be there. We'll still see the traces of that kind of that human endeavour to change the shape of the hill. Now, the thing about a stone circle is that depending on where it was sited in the first place, either for later people, it's annoying stones that get in the way of doing your farming or going about your business. Or when you need to rebuild your wall or rebuild a house or fill up that hole that the cow keeps falling in, you go, oh, we could use those stones in that field over there. They're a handy source. And so I think sometimes stone circles came a cropper more readily because they were either in the way or they were quite useful. And even actually in, in, in quite recent times, you read these antiquarian reports of saying, oh, well, people were repairing the road. And so they dug up these stones. And then I happened to be there and I found this uh, extraordinary human burial. And you go, oh, what were they digging up? Or cairns. Cairns are a, a classic one for um, robbing out stone, as the archaeologists would call it. Mm. So sometimes it's an absolute accident of survival that we have these sites and a distribution of sites that we try and explain. But actually, sometimes it might just be because we don't have any stone circles in what is now central Birmingham because central Birmingham's there, not because they never built them there. Of course. These hill forts then, I mean, it sounds as though that perhaps from what you just described is about, what, 3,000 hill forts? That's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, so hill forts, there are about more than 3,000 across Britain, and you can split them roughly into two types of hill fort. One which is a single or univallate hill fort, univallate meaning uni one, and valate meaning wall, so one ring of defences. And then multivallate hill forts, as in multiple sets of walls and ramparts. And they get more and more complex. So the ones in south and central England appear to be the most complex. We might perhaps think of them as a sort of one-upmanship, the equivalent of building skyscrapers now, that it becomes a kind of, well, who's got the biggest hill fort? Who's got the most impressive hill fort? Because that represents status, prestige, the ability of a warrior culture to command the labour of men to literally dig the earth into a different shape. And I think if you were approaching a hill fort, you have to imagine they're kind of nice places now to have a picnic or walk the dog. But back then, you need to sort of strip away the grass and imagine kind of rough earth or chalk cut down to bedrock. And then a large wooden palisade wall on the top with a gatehouse and perhaps, we don't know, painted, perhaps daubed with or strewn with, you know, the entrails of the defeated from the previous battle. We don't know what they were hanging on these walls. I mean, you can let your imagination run wild. But if you're about to have a fight, I would imagine that you'd put all your most ferocious warriors and your most terrifying bits and bobs along your gatehouse so that anyone entering might think twice before picking a fight. Hmm. 
you mentioned walls there, and obviously Hadrian's Wall is one of the key features of the archaeological landscape in England. And that's the handiwork of the Romans, of course, and English heritage look after the sites along that famous wall. Hmm. But what other marks did the Romans leave on the landscape when they were in Britannia? So the Romans, I think, are possibly the most famous as as road builders. And it's true that they did build, we estimate, about 10,000 miles of road in Britain in the first 100 years of them being here, which is pretty extraordinary. And they needed that effectively to administrate what was an annoyingly difficult edge of the empire. Britannia wasn't a particularly easy place to tame. People kept causing trouble, those barbarians in the north and Boudicca, you know, with her her revolt. There was all sorts of trouble in Britannia. It it wasn't a simple deal to kind of wander in and then just say, well, have this. It's, It's useful for grain and wool and slaves. Yeah, the Britons sort of fought back, which was rather unhelpful for the Romans. So one of the best ways for the Romans to administrate the corners of their empire was to build a good infrastructure so that they could get troops or supplies to the front line, that they could do all their administrative bureaucratic work that they were keen on so they could be answerable. So you get these amazing, you know, tablets at Vindolanda, not only chatting about tea parties, but also asking for more socks and grain and here's the taxes and all the rest of it. So you kind of need roads. You need a road network in order to facilitate that. We also get amazing bits of villas, mosaics, forts and mile castles. And of course, places like temples. And then we've got all the places that we still have now that are effectively Roman, like um, Bath. I mean, look beyond the Georgian bit of Bath and, and you've effectively got a Roman temple town. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and the Roman baths, which is where they came to um, enjoy the waters and for health reasons. Yeah, exactly. And and another thing that the Romans were really good at was not entirely overwriting what was there already. So Bath is a fantastic example because they associated the kind of the local goddess of the waters, Sulis, with Minerva. So they build a bath that honours Sulis, the local goddess, and just says, well, it's also Minerva. That was a kind of a fantastic thing, this this idea of syncretism. They they find the commonalities with the people they've just invaded and are currently dominating. And they go, oh, well, yeah, but your gods and our gods are the same. So let's just all carry on having a jolly old time as long as you do it our way. Bath, obviously, in the southwest of England is a good example of, well, a giant feature, really, with many layers of history, uh, which is in the landscape, but obviously it's in a city now. But if we go out of the landscape, uh, continue our walk, we sort of move into maybe some areas where there might be some Saxon or Norman features. What other things in the medieval period might we see if we're on our country walk? One of the most remarkable features that I think we almost take for granted in England because we have so many brilliant ones are our ancient churches. And often if you look at a medieval church that wasn't massively rebuilt by the Victorians, you'll actually see traces of what came before within the fabric of those buildings themselves. So when the Saxons turned up and the other kind of Angles and Jutes and various Germanic tribes, as the Romans left and then in the centuries that followed... They were often builders in wood, and so they would build churches and temple areas and and houses in in wood, and so they don't survive as well. But 
again, the, the kind of the reuse, recycle aspect of um, stone and brick in the landscape means that often you'll find churches with Roman stone and brick built into them. So if you ever see a church wall where it's got terracotta bricks, often laid in a herringbone pattern, you know for certain that this is Saxon stonework using Roman building materials because they're basically the only people who did it. And then, of course, you've got the countryside, the fields. Now, the earliest field boundaries we have are surviving on Dartmoor and they're known as reeves and they're actually Bronze Age field boundaries. But most of the field boundaries we see now and the patterns of of fields and agricultural landscapes are from medieval times up until more modern times. And so if you ever see ridge and furrow, you know, those corrugations that you see in a a pasture field, a grass field, Mm -hmm. they're actually ghost traces of medieval ploughing where that sort of slight curving shape is because the oxen pulling the plough would have to turn. The turning circle was quite large for these big heavy wooden ploughs. And so they'd curve off towards the end of the field in order to make the turn, in order to be able to plough the next line up. And so if you see that, it actually tells you a lot about the history of the the story of the landscape, because this once was ploughed land under cultivation and then was turned over to pasture. A lot of the time we say that this is probably because of the Black Death, but actually it isn't. It was more likely because of sheep, particularly in the home counties in southern and central England and, and the Midlands. As the wool prices increased in the 14th century, landowners just basically made a political economic decision that having a bunch of peasants growing turnips living in little houses was much less profitable than getting rid of the peasants and having an awful lot of sheep. And that's why we end up with a lot of depopulation of the countryside, but also these plough landscapes preserved under grassland, because then it was turned over to sheep pasture. Rich landowners made themselves even richer by farming sheep and and selling the wool, and the peasants got turfed off the land. And selling the meat as well, I, I expect. Is one of the good examples of this the uh, site in Warren Percy, the deserted medieval village in North Yorkshire? Yes, it's, it's a really good example. Warren Percy in North Yorkshire is perhaps the most famous deserted medieval village. And it's got an extraordinary story. We know from the Doomsday Book that it was probably founded in the 9th or 10th century and the main landowners at the time Doomsday was being written in 1086 were people with ethnically Viking surnames. So there was one landowner called Carly, there was another one called Lagman. But then Warren Percy was confiscated by William the Conqueror after the Norman invasion in 1066 and shortly after the Doomsday Book was compiled. And it was given to the de Percys. And so eventually it becomes Warren Percy rather than just Warren. And the Percy family have this village and it really blossoms in the 12th to the 14th centuries. It's, it's a, a rich area, it's um, richly agricultural, it's got working mills and you can still see the mill pond there. It's got a church, it's got two manor houses where they built one and then they build a bigger, better house elsewhere in the village. But then the family sort of comes into trouble and the heir dies and and then there's a a complicated inheritance dispute 
and there is the plague but it i don't think it makes that much of a difference to warren percy a few people die but not everybody there are some raids from the scots and so you get a record in the mid 14th century saying that half the land is being left uncultivated which is never a good sign when actually what you're talking about is subsistence farmers because it means the farmers aren't there, the families aren't there and that's why the land has remained uncultivated simply because the people have gone. Mm. When someone visits there then, what's the reason that um, Warren Percy was deserted? Is it a combination of things? Yes, it's a combination of things. By the 1400s, the Percy family no longer live in the village. They're absentee landlords. The village has been passed to a different branch of the family And there's a decision made in the mid-1400s that this slightly rubbishy village that is down on its look isn't pulling its weight in terms of the investment portfolio. And so the decision is made that contracts won't be renewed, that tenancies won't be renewed, houses won't be rebuilt. And so some people move away, some people are forcibly evicted, and they eventually allow the village to completely fall into disrepair. And a village that was once home to 200 or more people becomes home to 1,240 sheep employing two shepherds to look after them. And that's a story that's repeated all across England, this transition from small rural villages to a kind of more intensive farming method entirely focused on profit rather than maintaining community right um we're not talking about the modern day but it sounds like we are but you know we're talking about the 14th to mid 15th centuries are there any other sort of warren percy's around the country that you might come across on a walk there's some fantastic deserted medieval villages where you can literally walk along what was once the road and into someone's house. So there's some fantastic ones on Dartmoor. Hound Tor is an English heritage property that was started off as a prehistoric village and then was repopulated in, in the medieval times because the weather got slightly better and so people decided to kind of go venture further up further into the moor and they managed for a couple of generations and then the weather got a bit grubby again and and their grain started to rot and and the village was abandoned again but hound tour is lovely because you can see long houses traditional long houses where people would shelter their cattle and, and other livestock at one end and the people would live at the other end of the same building and you've got a kind of a gutter which would probably have a, a kind of a rough wooden wall partition between you and the cows But, you know, on a cold winter's night, the cows would radiate quite a lot of heat. So that would uh, keep the the heating bills down, too. (laughs) So so smelly, but um, economical. Yeah. Uh, Another really good example is um, a Gainsthorpe, which is in Lincolnshire, which is an extraordinary survival, simply because it was never built over or ploughed out. And it's it's funny because the, the fields around this, what is now a scheduled protected area, are quite heavily cultivated. But then you've got this funny little villa, uh, funny little field full of an ancient village, these earthen earthwork marks that show you the shape of a village. And there's antiquarians who write about it saying that it was a den of thieves and that's why it was abandoned. Now, we don't know. The last time it's in the records is in the 1350s. So Gainsthorpe may well actually be a victim of the Black Death of 1348-50, where 
if more than half your population die or perhaps even almost everybody dies then that really is the end of your village that really is the end of community and the few odd survivors would would limp away and take themselves elsewhere and perhaps it would be a place that you would swear never to go back to that for many generations it would be a place that was just under a a pal and you wouldn't wouldn't want to go back that's very interesting. There's a lot of different themes and lots of reasons for these villages being abandoned there. That I think greed, weather, perhaps people just wanting to try some other land that might be more fertile. And as you say, death, disease, and maybe even crops failing. Yeah, that's it. When you do have these big events like the Black Death of 1348-50, where at least a third of the English population was killed. And in in some areas, perhaps up to 90% of a community succumbed. There is an opportunity to do things differently. And when you then look at the kind of political history, this is a time when the peasant, or shortly after the peasants revolt and they demand better conditions. They demand better dues in terms of their indentures to the landowners. And it's, a, it's an opportunity for people to say, well, you know, so-and-so died and so their plots are being left uncultivated. I'll take that because that's better land than what I've got. Or I was, you know, having to struggle on that stony plot halfway up the hillside. I'm not going to do that now. And so there's an opportunity when you have these kind of great natural disasters, or as, as it were, to change the way we do things. Moving forward through time again, as we sort of continue our walk across the countryside, we encounter something that we didn't know how to name until now, but it's the enclosures. Now, what are they? The acts of parliamentary enclosure were taken through Parliament between 1750 and 1850, although the earliest was in the 1600s. In all, 5,400 separate acts of enclosure happened. And what these were, were basically a legal privatisation of the countryside. In lots of areas, land was held in common by all the villagers. So you would literally have a common where people would have rights to graze, rights to take firewood, quarry building material or sand or lime. They would be able to turn out pigs in the autumn, for example, under the woodland, so the pigs could eat the acorns, and that was called panage. There were all these different rights associated with living in the landscape, living in a particular place, and then being able to exploit the resources around you. Mm-hmm. And then you would also have a private plot as well, where you could grow your veggies and keep your chickens. And these acts of enclosure basically said that this common land, this land held in common and farmed communally needed to be portioned up so that it was privatised, so that I could say, this is my field and that's your field. In principle, that could have been a fair system. The people who had a small claim to land would get a small allocation of the of the whole and, and the larger landowners would get a large allocation. But the problem was that there was an expectation that as a landowner, you were now uh, expected to fence your land And small landowners, the peasant, the the poorest person in the village, just wasn't able to build a fence or plant a hedge to perhaps even measure out the estate that they had nominally been given on a piece of paper that they couldn't read. So they were forfeit. They forfeit their land if they couldn't jump through these hoops that were entirely designed for the rich landowners to kind of just wait and then gather up the bits and bobs. And so it was a terribly unfair system which dispossessed many, many people 
There were lots of villagers as well who didn't have any private claim to land. They simply relied on being able to eke a living from the common land. So they would take their firewood, they would pick wild foods, they would allow their one cow to graze on the common. And they were then left with absolutely nothing. They were destitute. And so these acts of enclosures effectively turned a sense of our land into private land keep out. Over the course of 100 years... Now, in terms of being a landscape spotter, not only kind of looking at an episode of social history that radically changed the way the British countryside existed, but you're also looking at the landscape that we see today, which is often sort of thought of as as picturesque, idyllic, timeless, that patchwork blanket of hawthorn hedges with oak trees and little fields, little square fields. Or in the north, dry stone walls rippling across the Yorkshire Yorkshire mm. wolds. These are actually landscapes that are relatively recent and an outcome of privatisation because that's landowners drawing lines on maps with a ruler and then sending labourers out to plant a hedge or build a wall along that straight line and say, well, that's my field now. So if you're on holiday and you're sort of flying over the land, you you'll get a sense of this patchwork quilt. And that more or less stems from the enclosures, those acts of parliament, which divided the land and gave more power to the landowners, really. Yeah. So if you're looking at looking at kind of regular fields and, and those straight country lanes with verges either side, then you're definitely there's always a few red herrings, probably definitely looking at planned countryside where they may well be the outcome of acts of enclosure. So relatively recent, especially if it's a quite sort of rationalised looking, sort of standardised hedgerow. Mm. There are areas where you have an ancient land system that has survived. So for example, Devon and Cornwall or the Weald, where you've got patchwork of woodland and much more small, irregular shaped fields. And for some reason, they just didn't quite get the brunt of it as much. And so older forms of land management have survived. So Mm. Britain is, uh, England is really rich in terms of different kinds of landscapes. But that kind of quintessential patchwork blanket of little squares of countryside with nice little straight fields and sheep grazing, that's quite recent. Yeah. Um, What year was that exactly, the enclosures? So the majority of the acts of enclosure, the parliamentary acts of enclosure, were passed between 1750 and 1850. Hmm. Although there were earlier ones in the 1200s, there were a few under King Henry VIII, but the majority of them were 1750 to 1850. And they went hand in hand with improving the landscape, so reclaiming areas that had previously been marshy or using new techniques to improve the productivity, new cycles of rotating crops. There was this kind of industrialization because this was a time when the industrial revolution was really accelerating and so people said how can we improve the landscape how can we improve the land how can we increase the return get better crop yields bigger fatter sheep that kind of give us better lamb chops but there was a kind of a human cost to that and perhaps a cultural cost to Mm. that that kind of drive for rationalization and profit so once you start examining the landscape then marianne I suppose it's fair to say that there's very little of England that hasn't been shaped by people. Would that be right? I think so. Even when you're standing in what feels like a a wild and windswept landscape in, in the Lake District or in the wilds of Dartmoor, what you are actually standing on is a landscape that was 
first farmed by Neolithic people who started to chop down the wildwoods, followed by generation after generation after generation, all who have made their marks on the landscape. And what you're looking at is this rich picture where some of the evidence of those who've walked before us is peeping through. You just need to start looking for it. All these features that we've described, you know, whether it's dry stone walls or Roman roads or hollowways or burial mounds, burial chambers, stone circles, hill forts, whatever, you name it. They all seem to connect us with the people who built them. Do do you feel quite connected as you do a walk across the countryside with these features and the people? Yeah, I really do. It's one of the things that I enjoy most. Britain is a relatively small island that has been permanently populated for more than 10,000 years, quite intensively for many of those millennia. And it's wonderful. I I love walking up a a Holloway thinking, well, who else has walked up here? Or poking around a, a medieval church, just thinking about the lives lived in this landscape, that I'm just the next one and there'll be people beyond me. And I think I get a renewed appreciation and a sense of place and belonging. And it's exciting because it's a place to tell stories and it's a way for us to really value it on a personal level rather than a kind of dry academic scientific level where we kind of say well it's important because it's old you go it's important because it's people and it's people like us and and using history and archaeology as a lens to reflect on what's important and what might change and how we can think about things in new and different and perhaps better ways absolutely and you mentioned stories there and here we are telling a story again today in a way Lastly, what would be your advice for anyone wanting to go out and explore and and read the features in their local landscape? Just get their hiking boots on or trainers and just (laughs) go for a stroll? If you can, absolutely get out there, go and explore, you know, kind of stare at old trees and woodland banks and say, well, you know, what does this potentially tell me about the ancientness of this patch of woodland? Look at the shapes of fields and the funny kinks in country roads and the way footpaths veer off. If you can't get out with hiking boots, then the resources online are absolutely extraordinary. So we talked about medieval villages. Sometimes those earthworks are quite hard to see up close in front of your own eyes. English Heritage have a fantastic tour that you can do. You can wander around Gainsthorpe digitally from your laptop or tablet sitting in your armchair. So there's opportunities for people to be landscape spotters, either from the armchair or from a a kind of a rainy windswept summit. You can do it both ways. If you can do it both ways, then I'd say do it both ways, because there's nothing like a full sensory experience when you're standing at a windswept summit next to a Bronze Age cairn thinking, I wonder who's in there. That's the stuff that gets me excited about archaeology. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To discover more about the history of the sites mentioned in this episode, go to the English Heritage website. Join us next week when we're back to discuss the story of the South Sea Company's stock market crash in August 1720 and its legacy today. I think as long as you have these tax havens, you're not going to seriously be able to really regulate the whole system. Thanks for listening. See you next time.